Hello, everybody. My name is Alex Marks, and this is Young History, episode 48 on Bahrain. The capital of this country is Manama, and it is a country that is in the controversially called the Persian Gulf. It is attached close to Qatar. It was almost included in the United Arab Emirates, and it's off of like the bigger coast of Saudi Arabia. So that, of course, means this country's history goes super, super far back because that area of the world has been populated and has had massive civilizations like Mesopotamia and Persia and ones of that sort for literal millennia. So this one is going to go pretty far back, but we are going to be able to bounce through it pretty good because since Bahrain is this little island that's kind of off the side of this area, it's not quite as deep of a history and it's not quite as been, the colonization hasn't been as big, not many huge empires came out of Bahrain. They definitely ruled Bahrain, but they didn't control it or come from it, I should say. But there's definitely still a lot of history here. And some of the things about this country that we know currently are that the name means two seas because the island is... A country that is located between two bodies of water on the eastern side it's like a salt water western side it's more of a fresh water like um kind of a sweet water reservoir thing and there is a belief about bahrain which is that the ancient area of dilmun which i'll get into as a sec is kind of like the first civilization that was there that area and the freshwater wells that were there in the ancient times led a lot of people to believe that bahrain is the place that in the Bible is considered the Garden of Eden because of these factors and because of its location in relation to Jerusalem and a lot of other major historical sites. Of course, anything in the Bible couldn't have been in reference to the Western world of the Americas because no one was there yet that was jotting down history in this way. So the belief is that it very well could have been Bahrain, which is where the Garden of Eden possibly was. And Currently, it is the biggest per capita electricity consumer in all of Asia and is the third biggest consumer in the world. This is per capita, which kind of makes it unfair to Bahrain because, yes, they're consuming a lot of electricity for their size, but they're also so small geographically that their electricity is super centered in a few cities. So it's kind of tough to say that they're consuming so much, but it's the truth nonetheless. And it also, in this country, has a famous mesquite tree that is called the Tree of Life that is 400 years old, and nobody knows where the actual water source is. Different scientists have different beliefs about this, and this is another biblical thing where some people also believe that where that tree grew and has stand for 400 year, stood for 400 years is also where the Garden of Eden was back when Adam and Eve were apparently running around. So I'm not putting any religious stuff on you. I'm just saying what some of the beliefs are. So... Another thing to say about this country and the area it is in specifically of the Arabian Peninsula countries and off of the Persian Gulf, there's a lot of connection between all these countries and the maritime system here has connected, even in ancient times, this part of the world to India, China, and Africa, especially East Africa, like Zanzibar and parts of Madagascar and things like that. And it's very unique to this area of the world and because of that you're going to see that I'm going to mention the things that were happening in the area as well as happening specifically to Bahrain. I'm also going to brush over a lot of things that were happening in the area of the Persian Gulf because I'm going to do those countries in the future. And I want to be able to give them their time in the sun and be able to focus on those specific things happening to, say, Qatar or the United Arab Emirates. Either of them, I'm going to give them their time for very specific stuff, but things that kind of hit like a blanketing area, including Bahrain, I will mention those too. So that is pretty much all I'm going to say for this part. I know I talked a lot, but it's because I'm excited and because I haven't been podcasting that much. I'm ready to be back here. So thank you guys so much for being here. And one more time, my name is Alex Marks. This is Young History, and this is Bahrain. Hope you guys enjoy. Let's do this.
So our origins begin 4,000 years ago. Well, technically 6,000 years ago in the 4th millennium BC. The area that is now Bahrain was a part of the Dilmun civilization, which had its peak around 1900 BC. They were really great merchants, these Dilmun civilization people, incredible fishermen, and they were great for harvesting pearls because in this region of the world, in super ancient times, as well as up until probably the last 200 years or 150 years, true like clam pearls were a huge thing to be harvested here. They were super plentiful, and they were a huge market because they've always been seen as a thing to make necklaces out of and make jewelry out of and be refined into other materials. So they've been doing this harvesting of pearls for literal ages. And for a time when the Dillon civilization was at its peak, it was controlling all the trade in the Persian Gulf and the land around the area was being used for harvesting a bunch of different materials, which were also being used for trade, were being used to feed the cities that were growing and being created in Bahrain, even in ancient times. And another thing that was interesting about Bahrain at the time is that the land actually used to be very much grassland and have a lot of freshwater wells this, you know, millennia and millennia ago. But now it is, you know, a very flat desert land than it is anything else. So to see the way humans have changed things is very interesting. But the Dillon civilization did eventually fall and it fell to the Kassites. The Kassites were already at this point very successful because before they actually conquered the Dillman civilization, they had already conquered Babylon in 1570 BC, which was one of the most important civilizations in human history. And at the time was one of the most powerful. So defeating them was huge. The Kassites had their rule followed by the Assyrians. Following that was the Neo-Babylonians. And after that was the Achaemenid Persians. And the next one to kind of leave a real mark on the land would be the Seleucid Empire, which was from the conquest of Alexander the Great when he was leading invasions out of Macedonia. And this led to like a brief influence over Bahrain, which was the most unique that it's seen yet because they had seen a lot of different civilizations that came from the Arabian Peninsula and east, like the eastern area of what was Persia and now Iran. They were seeing very similar influence like that, but with the Seleucid Empire, it was definitely a different influence than before. So following them, another group came into power. This would be the Iranian Hispaeocenes. They took over from around 209 to 124 BC. Didn't last that long. And then in between, there would be just a bunch of different rules from different either Middle Eastern caliphates or it would be the persians whichever dynasty of persia was in the time would hop in and out of bahrain and would take over the peninsula different areas of arabia were taking over a bunch of different things were coming in and out but the next major thing to really happen in the country in my eyes is in the 7th century muhammad who is the prophet of the religion of islam the second biggest religion in the world the teachings of the muslim faith came from him and came from the words that he said came directly from god and that he wasn't even speaking anything it was just god speaking through him who in their language is allah he sends a messenger to preach islam in bahrain and bahrain actually very quickly converted became one of the first muslim countries in the entire world and following this spread of islam and acceptance of islam they're actually was a lot of sects of Islam created, just like with every religion, people have different slight interpretations of what their faith is. And here in Bahrain, a man named Abu Sa'id al-Janabi formed the Comartian state in the late 800s in Bahrain, and they actually challenged the Abbasid Caliphate, which was the major Muslim Middle Eastern Caliphate that was taking over at the time. It had parts of North Africa conquered, as well as pretty much the entire Arabian Peninsula, but this commercian state in Bahrain wanted to stand up against them and for a time this commercian state did rule in Bahrain and they had a lot of 
influence here, some positive, some negative. One of the negative ones being that a lot of slavery was brought in from Ethiopia specifically. The reason was because it was easy to access that area of Africa for them by ship. They were able to sail kind of out of the Persian Gulf and under the Arabian Peninsula over to what was west of them, to that northeastern part of Africa, work their way down, grab slaves from greater Ethiopia, and take them back to be enslaved and worked in Bahrain. And they also did even crazier things, which was whenever an innocent pilgrim of a different sect would come into Bahrain, a lot of them were executed. And even beyond that, they did one of the most heinous things on the sake of what it means kind of philosophically and means to people's hearts in history was they actually raided Mecca and stole the black stone, which is insane because that black stone is... I'm not going to try and belittle it at all. It is one of the most important things in the Muslim religion, and there's a reason that it is part of every Muslim's life to at one point make the pilgrimage to Mecca. It is because of the Black Stone, because of the history and significance of Mecca. So that is, like, foul for them to do that. It's crazy. And I remember when I first learned about it, I was like, there's no way. And they like the drawings of it happening are just unbelievable. So that happened, but eventually the Comartians would be defeated. It would be the... Abbasids who were the ones to do it and following them the kind of continued lack of control of one caliphate or dynasty in the region would be continued where it's kind of just up and down so the Abbasids ruled for a time a couple of different Islamic caliphates took over and then the next ones to have real influence here would be the Persian Hormuz rulers and they took over around 1330 and these were and these Hormuz of Persia actually made lots of money in the slave trade pretty much made their money and tried to pass it down to their next generation. They didn't do much well outside of make money and get that one major victory to take over the land. And they were defeated by another caliphate. This kind of goes on for the next 100 years, 150 years or so. But change really starts to come when the Europeans start sticking their nose in. Now, the first invasion happens in 1521 by the Portuguese. They took over the Gulf trade, and this included the Pearl trade, which had its center out of all the Arabian Peninsula in Bahrain. And the Portuguese would actually take over the entire Gulf for a time, and they controlled all seaborne trade. Well, one over the next few decades, they were really able to start building forts and taxing and pretty much made it known, like, yeah, we're the ones in charge here. So they had that for a very long time. And that would last them the entire century. It would be in 1602 that the Safavid Empire actually took control from the Portuguese. And over the next 20 years, they would work hard with other European powers like the British as well as other powers in the Arabian Peninsula to destroy any of the Portuguese forts that were on the waters and really try and pull this Portuguese influence away from the country and from the Arabian Peninsula in general. And because of this, as more and more Portuguese rule was kind of ripped away from the area, the Gulf would open up trade for all of European powers. So Dutch, British, French, even the Portuguese again, got to come back in here and trade. And then trade also expanded farther going to the east over to India. The next power that would come in would actually be the Persian Afsharid Empire because they were the ones to take over power from the Safavids. They would take the strain of Hormuz, which is the big, like, farthest expansion any of the empires had gotten to by that point when it came to in the Persian Gulf in the last hundred, few hundred years. However, this rule would not last for long despite them conquering Hormuz and all of that as the empire's main tactician, whose name was Nader Shah Afshar, when he died, it was pretty much the same as a lot of kingdoms where the kingdom was entirely built on what the way the one king rules rather than the system of kings. So once he went down, so did the empire. And this led to a greater change happening where the English would actually start to work with the Persians who were fighting in the east to actually defeat the Portuguese that were coming in and out of 
Bahrain, and we're trying to you know really establish like okay, we want a specific kind of rule. So the people controlling Bahrain at the time were defeated, and the people left in charge are a man named Shah Abbas and Safavid and his cabinet of people that were approved by the British. So this rule would actually end in 1717 as the Omanis from Oman actually invaded the land and fought really fiercely to take over. And the Persian... And this actually didn't work for long because the Persians actually once again got help from European powers, this time the British and the Dutch. And this kind of had a lot of effects on the country as the consistent wars and consistent changing of powers and changes in finances and money being spent to war, people being forced to fight for Bahrain, being drafted, all these things really hurt Bahrain. It literally got to the point where the country was like borderline about to be destroyed because of the fact that the population was getting dropped off so heavily. It's believed that anywhere from 25 to 50% of the population either died or left Bahrain at the time because of all the war that was going on. And this kind of left the country in a weird like chaos for a while as these different powers were in and out. But the next one that comes into power is one that actually sticks and is actually still in power today. So that would be a man named Abin al-Khalifa. He has a much longer name, but we're going to simplify it to just that. He was the leader of the Persian Zan dynasty, and they would take over and occupy Bahrain and work with the Qajar dynasty to like really establish a long-term rule. And they fully take over in 1783, and it is actually the descendants of Abin al-Khalifa that are still in power today, despite so many different invasions happening. It's still been his descendants that have really stuck their heels in and been like, no, this is our country, we're here to rule it, and they've been inheriting it generation after generation since 1783. And there was kind of a weird thing that happened during this late 1700s different rule of Khalifa's descendants. It was actually that an Omani sultan who invaded saw his saw himself as the next heir, and he knew he wasn't fit to do it because he was already running Oman. So he actually sent his 12-year-old son to take the throne and... The son was very quickly rejected and sent out. Some believe they actually beat the kid and sent him back as a lesson. But either way, this 12-year-old kid was supposed to like kind of just sent to the country and he was supposed to just rule. And everyone there went, no, and just sent him on his way. It would be after this that Britain really starts to make its influence, which is where, which is between 1820 and 1816. Britain was the premier power in the oceans and the seas across the world. They definitively, definitively had the best navy in the world, the British Navy. And they started to negotiate with Bahrain in order to establish political political control over the country in order to gain advantage in the trade within the Gulf because so much trade was coming in and out of that land. And, of course, at the time, Britain was still in control of India. So having this connection from being able to trade from India into Bahrain through the Middle East and, you know, connect to Africa and all these through the ports that Bahrain would get you access to, it was very huge, very important. And this is kind of the push towards Bahrain becoming a protectorate because they would get a lot of financial aid and all of the protection from Britain if they gave up their autonomy over foreign policy and trade. And it goes over, pretty much the vote happens, and, you know, it's signed away. So in 1861, Bahrain became a protectorate, and Britain actually ended slavery once they came in because they had eliminated slavery in 1834. So once they took this country over, they started to change the rules and get rid of slavery pretty much as soon as they come into power. And the effects of this were, of course, that it helped the economy prosper and a lot of merchants moved in. But there was definitely a shift in culture as well because now the country was seeing so much more in volume of people come into the country that new cultures were coming in, different kinds of Persians were coming in, different people from around the Arabian Peninsula were coming in, some Indians would come in from India. So it was just a whole lot happening, and that's why Bahrain today is such a melting pot. 
And this sounds like a really good thing overall, but there was a point where Bahrain got really upset because in 19, because in 1892, Britain kind of took the next step where they formally annexed Bahrain despite the diplomacy between the two and all the negotiations and the fact that Britain more or less had full control of the country. They still made the choice to kind of jump it and annex all of Bahrain. And this led to a lot of unrest because people didn't like this. They didn't like kind of the betrayal. They didn't like the way things just happened. So they started to protest it. But despite this, British rule did hold strong. This even went on through the First World War where there was fighting throughout the Middle East. It kind of happened on and off. But Britain held strong. Bahrain didn't really see too much action in the First World War. But some people living here were still drafted to go fight for the Royal Army. After World War One, though, there was something that was created in Japan that actually really changed the economy for Bahrain and a lot of other Persian Gulf countries, and that would be the creation of cultured pearls, where true raw from clam pearls were being created, harvested, I should say, by Bahrain and these other Gulf countries for centuries and millennia, and it was a huge part of their trade always, even back to the Dilmun civilization in 4000 BC. So when this kind of scientifically lab-created cultured pearl is created in Japan, it literally crushes their economy because they're cheaper, they can be bought in bigger bulks, they can be distributed farther because Japan had better access to get to like China as well as the Western world, despite them having to go east to get there, like across the Pacific. They could connect to America, they could connect to the Latin Americas, and they had good connections with Europe as well. So it was very tough, very, very tough for all these countries that had a big part of their economy relying on the harvesting of raw pearls. But this would change very quickly when it comes to the economy being tough because in Bahrain, oil was discovered in 1932 and over the next few decades, the rest of the Arabian Peninsula would discover oil and it would completely change their destiny and their wealth and everything about them for the rest of their future, as we still see today. And beyond oil, Bahrain actually started to organize strikes in order to challenge British control of the land and this was starting to happen post-World War II. This was when Bahrain's really getting some money of its own. It's really finding out who they are and starting to discover, or I should say rediscover, what their culture is and started to embrace it, started to have the money to fight for themselves and all these things, and they get after it. So they really start to stand up to the British, and the British were already at the point where they're starting to decolonize post-World War II. So in 1971, independence does come to Bahrain, and during their talks for independence, because it happened for a lot of the Gulf countries very quickly, one after another, Bahrain and Qatar were actually asked to join the United Arab Emirates as kind of one united nation, and both of them rejected it. So that's why we have those three nations being separate rather than one big one, because the emirates that make up the United Arab Emirates were all kind of part of the same colonial empire at a time, and Bahrain and Qatar were all included in that, so they figured as UAE that they would be able to unite together, but Bahrain and Qatar both said they're good. The thing that did happen, though, was the U.S., like the United States of America, actually became the premier maritime power of the world, so they actually kind of took over the efforts of the British and established a little bit of a holding in Bahrain as well as other Gulf countries to get access to the oil, be able to trade out of there, and establish bases for travel and any military expeditions that need to happen. And despite this kind of foreign influence and still kind of being in negotiation and kind of under the supervision of a bigger country like the U.S. or Britain, one of those. The economy actually did very well around this time for for Bahrain and even is still doing today. And that is because instead of relying on oil, the Bahraini government actually really worked on diversifying their economy. And it was a huge decision and ended up being paying 
and it ended up paying dividends because in August of 1973, the oil crisis shook most of the Gulf nations really badly, but Bahrain actually ended up becoming the banking center of the Middle East after this because Lebanon started to go into chaos after their civil war. This oil crash hurt a lot of countries, but Bahrain kind of was able to manage it better than almost any other Arabian and Gulf country. And it was because of their diverse economy. And today they still have a very diverse economy. A lot of different sectors are touched by the way they handle themselves, and it's done them very well. And in the mid-90s, there was also a mini like attempt. It was a revolt attempt at a revolution broke out. It was called the Uprising of Dignity, which lasted from 1994 to 1999, where the citizens of Bahrain fought as hard as they could to really get democracy in their country because, as I said, the Khalifa descendants had been pretty much ruling the country ever since. And it got to a point where these people now had access to better technology and could see what was happening in the rest of the world through television and all that. And they didn't like the idea that they kind of just had to listen to whatever this leader said. And they wanted more autonomy. They wanted the right to vote. They wanted an enhanced right to vote. And they wanted women to get the right to vote. And some changes did come, one of them being that women got the right to vote and the power of the vote by the people increased, things like that. And the country got a lot better. But this wouldn't be the last time they do this because in 2011, another unrest broke out because the Shia majority of the country, which is one of the sects of Islam, rallied against the Sunni leaders of the country because, of course, they view the religion differently, and any laws that are passed would likely lean towards supporting the Sunni way of doing things because there isn't a lot of secularism here. Like, the religion is very much built into the way the country is run. And, of course, the Shia majority feels that they would have their way of life changed. So a lot of unrest happened, and there was a huge, like, disgusting response from the government. Many protesters were beaten or killed. Journalists were assassinated. A lot of things like that were brutal. But since then, things have started to calm down. There's much less tension, and there's much less, like, fire and, like, knives at each other's throats from either side. Different people have come into power. There's still a bit of tension, but it's definitely better than it was before. And that pretty much gets us to the present day, where despite all the things that have happened things are calmer, and the country is still doing very well financially. And you could pretty much see that in its major cities, like Manama, where there's huge skyscrapers, and like the level of technology and all that in the country is very, very clear. And unlike Saudi Arabia, Bahrain is very proud to have like open tourism, and tourism does bring in a lot of money. It's another part of them diversifying their economy. And actually right now, the currency of Bahrain, which is the Bahraini dinar, is actually the strongest, second strongest currency in the world and the only one that's behind is the one in kuwait so doing they're doing very well from their stuff in that case there's definitely a gap of wealth in certain parts of bahrain because as you get farther from the cities there's little rural enclaves that definitely operate differently and there's definitely poverty that strikes but they don't do bad for themselves on the gdp per capita scale pretty much double the national average the international average which is very impressive but they definitely still do have their problems and Beyond that, though, Bahrain is very special for the fact that it's a huge melting pot, which is kind of rare in the Arabian Peninsula, the Arabian Peninsula, because so many different cultures have come in here in and out because of the history of the Persians and the Greeks and Indians coming in, British, Dutch, Portuguese, all the different caliphates, so many different people and leaders and cultures have come in and out of Bahrain or traded in Bahrain or immigrated to Bahrain that there's just so much diversity. You can see it in the giant open markets. There's Persian rugs being sold right next to rugs for praying for Islam. There's just a bunch of different ones and it's very unique to this little island and it's quite special. So that pretty much gets us to the end where I always like to leave it with either a mindset or a takeaway to kind of carry with you from this country and the way the people are and their history and for Bahrain that lesson is 
find your value and provide it. So this country has, of course, much less oil than a big country like Saudi Arabia, and it has much less land space, smaller military, all of these things, and a lot of the neighbors that surround it, Iran, Iraq, Saudi, Oman, a lot of these. And despite that, the country still knows what it's good at. It knows it has this ability to have a diversified economy. It can provide services and tourism and can be a banking center, and it can be a great place to show off like the power of the Middle East by showing the skyscrapers. It's great for transportation. A bunch of these things are present in this country and very, very much advertised, and they're very much true to the Bahraini and the way they've carried themselves and the way they've adapted to the changing world. And the reason I compare that to what you can do with yourself or what I can do with myself is that you have a value. There are going to be people who are taller than you, bigger than you, stronger than you. Those people are going to play a sport that you can't play. They're going to be better at you at certain things. There's going to be opportunities for them that aren't going to be there for you. But the same can be said from their perspective about you. You have your emotional abilities. You have your mental abilities, academic. Maybe you're good at law. Maybe you're good at things in the medical field. You're great at meditating, yoga, Whatever your thing is, I know it's not oil or selling a service kind of like on an international scale like the way countries do, but you have a service to provide, even if it is just the way you listen to people, which could lead you to being a therapist. Maybe it is something like yoga where you're doing a wellness class. Maybe it's a product. Maybe it's just something. Whatever it is, I don't know, but I know you have something because we all have something. We all have something in us that is special to us, that is our unique thing that we can provide to the world that we can push out to people that we can advertise and sell and do so whatever that thing is find it and provide it and do that without regarding what everyone else is doing because if you know in your heart what you're doing is truly serving other people it's serving yourself and it's making you proud of who you are happy to look at the future and you know that you're serving the world and serving yourself you're good it doesn't matter what other people are doing people are going to make more money than you doing anything you do because people like the Saudi Arabians and the Bahraini exist. These are people that are oil rich. You will never have that kind of money unless you're one of them. There are people like Musk and Bezos, all these guys that have unfathomable amounts of money and success. Don't worry about them. Even people in your own space, let's say you are a podcaster. I could rattle off 10, 20 names of podcasters that even if the stars aligned, I would be so lucky to ever, ever, ever touch their level of reach and money and greatness and fortune and fame. It's the truth, but I know what I can do. I know that this history is something I want to provide. I want to do this country by country. I want to give the lessons at the end. I want to interview people in my neighborhood and people on my travels that wouldn't get interviewed by these big guys. That's my service. That's my thing I provide. That's the thing that makes me me and makes me proud of my dream and proud of my future. And no matter what happens with it, as long as I'm sure that is my thing to provide, which can change and you could have been wrong about, Whatever it is, and for me it's this, I'm going to stick with it. I'm not going to give it up no matter if for the next two, three years I do only get a couple dozen views on these videos and these podcasts because that isn't what matters to me. What matters to me is doing it and putting the work in, and that's what providing value is. If you know your value or your service has a value for people, then provide it no matter what. Sell it, make it, get out there, and just do it because it doesn't matter what the other guys are doing. It matters what you are doing. So provide your value. Do what you have to do. Do whatever you have to do to find that thing. If you haven't already found it, find that passion. Find that you know, thing about you that you can give to the world and also in the same way give to yourself. Put your whole heart into finding that. And then once you find it, put your whole heart into doing it and providing it. So that is that for me. That was Bahrain. That was the lesson from them. And I'm going to wrap up right here. So thank you all so much for being here. I had a lot of energy this time. I loved it. And 
One more time, my name is Alex Marks, this is Young History, and that was Bahrain. You guys are sick and awesome. Let's do this thing. Bye-bye.